This is Season 2, Episode 24 of the Language Mastery Show with Jonti Yamasha. Here's a little sample of what's coming up. The most intelligent and helpful thing that I can say is that it takes time. I think there's a lot of parallels between any sort of physical activity, whether you are looking to learn a martial art or advance your your bench press or your squat or run a mile in record time. The reality is that on a day-to-day basis, you're not going to see progress. On a day-to-day basis, however, because you're not seeing progress, you can be tempted to just not do it today because you'll make it up tomorrow. But the reality is if you spend 15 minutes a day, 365 days a year, that's 91 hours. 91 hours is probably enough to get to A1 maybe A2. In today's episode, I chat with Jonti Yamasha, a language activist and accidental polyglot in his own words, a third-generation Circassian refugee and the founder of OptiLingo. We discuss the Circassian language and cultural history, how he's raising his children bilingually, and how he steals back time for language learning amid his busy professional and family life. For show notes, go to languagemastery.com slash show where you can see all of the resources, concepts, people, etc. that we mentioned in the episode. All right, enjoy my chat with Jonti. So you're you're based you're not in Vermont, are you? No, I'm in uh, Washington state. Washington. Why do I think Vermont? I remember it was one of those picturesque, very green, lush areas. Yes, well, where I grew up on the west side of Washington was very green and now I live in the the desert actually. A lot of people don't realize but you go over the Cascades in Washington, and it's an actual desert with tumbleweeds and wow, all that. Um, it's where my wife's from. We we moved here in February because our sister just had a baby, and we thought we can live anywhere. We're basically you know digital nomads, so let's go help sure. out with the fam for a while. So yeah, cool. So, so here we are. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course, yeah. I'm glad you uh, could jump on. And you're over. You're in the East Coast. I'm in, I was, uh, I lived in the East coast for 30 years, but I live in Chicago now. Oh, in Chicago. Okay. You're, yeah. And I'm, uh, in my luxurious office at my day job. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll try not to keep you too long. Cause I'm sure you have better things to do than just ramble on about language learning all day. No, I'm sure you'd I, like I, to, I, but I'd yeah. like to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is the better things I'm doing. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Uh Oh, looks like we're breaking up here again. I'm going to switch just to audio. I think we're having bandwidth issues again here. Let's try. I think the video takes up the bandwidth. I don't know. Yeah, let's just we'll just switch back to audio. We we've proven we're both okay. humans, so we can There we go. I am a human. I am a human as well. I think. Well, as far as I, I know. I haven't had the DNA test come back yet. <laughs> well, I did do my DNA test and that's uh, very interesting stuff, by the way. But yeah, it did you know, not show any robot on there. Uh, so joking aside, I I never really had much of an interest in DNA testing. But my one of my best friends, who is also an ethnic Circassian, on my 35th birthday, so this is almost a decade ago, um, on my 35th birthday, he bought me a DNA testing kit. But not it, – it, actually, it's from um, I think only one of two labs in the world that actually do the in-depth Mm-hmm. haplog uh, mapping and all this other stuff. So um, it turns out that something like 50 or 60,000 people from the North Caucasus have entered their DNA sequencing into this database. And uh, I'm like 97% Kabardian, which is like my tribe, my region, my village of Circassians. <laughs> wow. The, the 3% that's not Kabardian is Abkhaz, which is what my grandmother was. So 
<laughs> that was funny. That's pretty nifty, yeah, to be able to confirm sort of the the family lore yeah. and, and tradition that you've, I'm sure, been you know passed down verbally through the the generations. But to yeah. to see on yeah. a map, like, yep, actually that that's it. Yep. Uh, that's actually a good, I think, tangent. We could just kind of jump in and, and roll with it here. I, I do sure, this pretty organic. Sure. But um, one of the first things I usually like to do with guests is kind of get into their origin story of language learning. And mm-hmm. I definitely want to touch on that with you. But I also want to get into sort of your historical family background, too, and how that intersects with with languages. So I think it's a really interesting story. So uh, in one interview, I think you said you're a... a, a for, I mean, get the term wrong. I think you were said you're a third generation refugee. Refugee. So, yeah. what what is that? What does that mean? And how does that all tie into now your language uh, adventure? Yeah. Um, so, um, I am an ethnic Circassian, and uh, as a percentage, we we are a small nation. There's probably not more than five million of us in the world. But as a nation, as a percentage, we are the largest diaspora in the world. Um, 80 to 85 percent of us live outside of our ethnic homeland. And there's a number of historical reasons for that. But um, it has to do with human history. Right. Mm -hmm. Humans have historically always been looking for reasons to kill other humans who were too tall, too short, too light, too dark. Right. Or kick them off their land because they have resources they want. Yeah. 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 So and then if they happen to be too short and too light or too dark and there's resources. Right. All the easier for the (laughs) yeah. yeah, For the the bigoted narrative. Indeed. Yes. Yeah. Um, So um, about. uh, Well, I don't know. Back in the 1700s, there was um, a region of the world called Circassia and. You know, I don't want to get into a whole political conversation here because people say we had a country. Well, back in the 1600s, 1700s, there were no countries. It was like, you know, right, this is a kingdom right, and it right, goes up right. until that pasture over there and beyond the valley is somebody else's. Right. Um, but there was a, a, an expansion of the Russian Empire. Uh, that expansion came into the Caucasus, and it's well documented that uh, the view at the time w- is very similar to the view that uh, the Americans had against uh, Native Americans, which is these are savages. These are not quite human beings the way that um, us civilized Europeans are. They don't understand region. Uh, they don't understand re- reason or logic, and so the only way for us to accomplish our political goals is to crush them, or exterminate them, or mm-hmm. export them. Right. Um, and I'm not placing any value statements on the thinking at the time because human beings were not that evolved at the time. Right. Right. We're so, still not by many metrics. Uh, by seats, many so. metrics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so as a result of that, there was a war of conquest in the North Caucasus that began uh, for my ethnic group in 18, uh, 1764 and ended in 1865. And during that 101 year duration, um, Circassia fell in waves and became part of the Russian Empire. First, it was Eastern Circassia, which was also called Kabardia, which is the region that my family is from. And then in the later stages, it was Western Circassia, or as it was called back then, Free Circassia. Um, A lot of people were killed during this war of conquest. A lot of these survivors were then exported or forcibly removed into the Ottoman Empire. Um, And then when the Ottoman Empire expanded and contracted and finally fell apart, we had Circassians that were left across what is now Turkey, uh, Syria, Jordan, Israel, and um, also parts of um, Libya. Wow, so all um, over the Levant and – Yes, right, okay. and also in uh, Kosovo, oh, right, okay. in the Baltic okay. region right. as well. So, so gotcha. a, as a result of that, um, you know, my family branch 
grew up, my father was born in Syria, or my father was born in what's now Syria. Um, God knows what it was called when he was born there. My mom was born in what's now part of Israel. Um, and I have family. So that's an interesting I, family reunion. Uh, <laughs> it's a family reunion where not everybody can attend. <laughs> right, right, right. So today um, I have, if I look at, you know, my last name is Yemusha, and if I look at Yemush people uh, all over the world, there's a handful of us still in Syria who are still living in Syria today. Um, a few who went over into Jordan because of the war, uh, a whole bunch that are in Turkey, um, and then even more that are in Russia. And then I have from, you know, they don't have the same last name as me, but we're still related. I have other relatives that have emigrated into Saudi Arabia. I have some distant relatives who live in Israel. I have a handful of relatives that have moved into Europe um, by way of Turkey. And then obviously I have uh, some relatives in, in North America and the United States as well. So growing up, it was very weird and very interesting because up until I was, I don't know, 13, 14 years old when I went to high school, I was a monolingual. And I, I can't say I was even bilingual when I went to high school. They forced us to study a foreign language. I'm not going to say that I became proficient in any of the foreign languages I studied in high school. That's a common theme I've heard you talk about, and I know Chris has talked about as yes. well. Um, but I, I would say until I was probably 30 years old, I was a monolingual. But at the same time, I was a monolingual who often was exposed to and felt very comfortable hearing in the background mm -hmm. Semitic languages, you know, lots of Arabic, little tiny bit of Hebrew, bunch of Turkish, a bunch of Russian. Um, it just was always in the background. So it, it's like imagine that you're uh, a white dude who lives in Southern California who doesn't speak Spanish but often hears Spanish music. It doesn't feel foreign, but it's definitely not something that you can really you know understand right, that well. Right. So that's how it was growing up. And what the, language the other, did your parents speak to each other? Was it in English? Circassian, for your, no. Oh, was they, Circassian. They, okay. Yeah, they, they speak almost exclusively to each other in Circassian. Okay. Um, and then the other thing is, there's another dimension of this. And I, I, I think that this is applicable because, in my opinion, people who are interested in multiple languages are often interested in them, in my opinion, because of some identity issue or identity exploration. Mm. So in, in my case, growing up, my mother and father would say, you know, we're Circassians, we're Muslims, this is what we do, this is what we don't do. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're, we're Circassians, uh, show me my country on a map. Well, right. we don't have a country. Okay, um, show me a book written in our language. Well, we don't read or write the language because there was no written language when our grandparents left. Mm -hmm. They taught us how to speak it, but we never learned how to read or write it because it wasn't until the Bolsheviks came and created a Cyrillic alphabet, blah, 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 mm -hmm. blah. So, I couldn't point to my country on a map because it didn't exist. I couldn't find a book, at least when I was a kid. I mean, there are some books. There are a lot of books now, but when I was a kid, couldn't find a book written in the language. There was nobody on the planet knew the, who the heck we were. So, you know, I, I have to say, I'm, I'm not being dramatic here. Deep down, I often wondered, are they just tricking me? Is this a big lie or <laughs> mm -hmm. some sort of social experiment? Um, but then at the same time, well, okay, we're Muslim. All right, so let's go hang out with all the other Syrians. Well, they're Arabs and they have a different culture and there's nothing – no, nothing against Arabs but different culture, uh, different background. Well, we're from Syria. Yeah, but we're not Arabic. So here I am. I'm, I'm sort of a – I'm a third-generation refugee and I'm like a minority within a minority within a minority because I'm a non-Arab Middle Eastern who person who's Muslim in the United States, whose family has ties to Russia, but I'm not Russian and it's during the cold war. So, <laughs> um, right. very weird. And as a kid, so this goes kind of to your first question, what's kind of, how did I get into languages? So as a kid, um, 
we first lived in Southern California, then we moved out east to New Jersey when I was about six or seven years old. And um, out there, a lot, although not all of my relatives spoke English. And as a child, my father and mother would often, uh, through great financial pains, make the efforts to bring us to visit our relatives in Syria every couple of years. And the, the, the most vivid and earliest memory that I have, which is really my language origin story, um, and I write about this at length um, on my blog and in a book that I've written that's available on Amazon, it's, it's when my mother took me back to Syria to meet my uh, grandparents. It was the second time that I had been there. Uh, I don't remember the first time because I was 18 months old, but um, she brought me back again because now I was three and I could speak a little bit, but I also had a newborn brother. So here's the firstborn me, and then here's the secondborn, my brother, and we went back. And my, um, my aunt, who lived in Damascus at the time, threw this big party for us. And I have this vivid, vivid memory. I, um, I have this condition where I can't actually visualize when I shut my eyes, but I can remember, I can articulate the exact layout of her home. And I remember very vividly my grandfather running around and, you know, making sure that everything was in order because here, you know, there's going to be this big party for his two grandsons, not just his one grandson. And of course, his his daughter-in-law, who's was born in Syria, is, is one of our people, came back to visit. And I even remember, um, you know, one of my aunts went and bought a couple of live chickens and another of my aunts was slaughtering the chickens and defeathering them. And I, I, I can remember this very vividly. And my most vivid memory is of my grandfather hugging me and kissing me and talking to me and all these kind faces in this room, relatives distant and close, loving me and kissing me and hugging me and talking to me and understanding zero of what they said. Hmm. I don't remember a single word of what they said. And um, in subsequent years, my parents would bring me back to Syria. The last time I was there, I was a teenager, and it was the last time I saw my grandfather alive. And he he wasn't quite on his deathbed, but he was at the you know he was at clearly at the end of his life. And he would call me into his into his bedroom, and he would he would give me words of wisdom. He would give me advice. He would tell me things that he thought were important for um, his grandson to know. And I did not understand a single word of what he said. Mm. And um, for me, that's the beginning of my language origin story. But for me, uh, I think it, it, that's the beginning of this theme that I still think haunts me today. It's been largely resolved, but there's a little bit there. And growing up, I often felt like a cultural orphan. Mm-hmm. So here is this um, – long, uh, illustrious history of my people, wisdom of my ancestors that I am separated from, right? My my mom and dad grew up in a village in the Middle East, sure, in the Middle East, but everyone in the village was their people, you know, or the majority of the people in that village were their people, and there were a handful of other villages around them that were their people as well, right? Um, fast forward to me, now I'm growing up in the United States, I'm told what I am, but I don't have a society around me that I can look at to actually understand what that means. To the contrary, I'm constantly being told, you know, you're not this, you're not this, you're not that, Mm -hmm. but I don't know what I actually am. I don't have the ability to engage in the language and, and understand the elders and what they're trying to tell me. 
And um, because I am a third generation refugee, like you, you grow up with with stories like, oh, your grandmother died at a young age and your father was only 10 years old. What did she die of? Well, we don't know. Probably cancer. <laughs> what do you mean you don't know? Probably cancer. Do I have cancer? Like, do I have a genetic predisposition mm-hmm. to cancer? We have no idea. Go figure it out, kid. Okay, well, where was my great-grandfather born? Ah, some village somewhere in Russia. We're not sure exactly where. Okay, can we go there? No, it's the Cold War. You can't get visas. You know where you're going to go. So, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's it's almost the analogy I've often used. It's like when you go to the museum, uh, like a natural science museum, and you see this um, life-size diorama of uh, the caveman or the guy from the 1800s or whatever, and it's behind glass, and you can see it perfectly, but you can't quite touch it or experience it. For the vast majority of my life, that's what it felt like to be circassian. And um, the manifestation of that was there was always a hole missing somewhere in my soul. So, um, now, Which side of the glass do you think you were on? Because I could see that going both ways, depending on... Uh, that's a good you know. question. You know, I always thought I was on the outside, um, but I can see how you could see it going both ways. Mm-hmm. So, um, Circassian, yeah, I, I, I hate when people say this language is hard, you know, this is hard. I don't believe in the concept of hard or easy. Thank, thank I, you. Thank you. <laughs> that, well, if you've listened to any of my other episodes, that's one of my, my, you know, pet soapbox topics. Yes. Is I, why would you I, create a self-fulfilling prophecy? Of, yeah. Saying yeah, something's I, hard. Or, or even worse, I suck at X, whatever right, X may right. happen to be. Yeah. Um, I think that there is what is close and far from what you know. Yes, and there yes. are things you make time for and things that are not that important to you. Right. Right. Um, so uh, that said, circassian is pretty hard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what, what makes it challenging to learn is there's there's other than materials that I have developed over the last 10 years there really are no materials that are available for non-native speakers. And what I mean by that is, you know, what do you mean by non-native speakers? So certainly in the North Caucasus and the Russian Federation, there are books that are used in their public schools, but they assume that you spoke this language or speak this language at the, at the kitchen table. Right. They assume that you have access to a plethora of native speakers. They assume that you read Cyrillic to begin with. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's a completely different mindset than somebody who's coming at it cold. Um, so, uh, at the age of 31, I said, you know, I'm not going to learn Circassian someday. I'm going to learn it today. And, um, I had no, you know, I'm not a linguist. I don't have a background in applied linguistics, although I do have a nonprofit foundation for Circassian, preser- Circassian language preservation. I have some board members and, you know, one guy is a PhD in linguistics out of Harvard. The other guy is out of Columbia. Uh, they joke that I have a, a postdoctorate in applied linguistics at this point. But back then, I didn't know what I was doing. And so I said to myself, well, let me learn some basic vocabulary. And um, I would – I don't know if Google existed at that time. Ten years ago, they were probably around. But I searched for, you know, California achievement tests, vocabulary sets, SAT vocabulary sets, sight words, you know, anything that I could – what we would now call high frequency word lists or, mm-hmm. or useful word lists. I searched for as many of these as I could find. And then and that took me, you know, six months or so. Um, and then I sat down and I said, I'm going to learn the alphabet. The alphabet has 56 letters. Some of these sounds are quasi tonal based. There are glottal stops in it. Some of the letters are actually multi-character letters. Like for example, the letter is four characters long. 
So it took me a year to learn the alphabet because, you know, for example, there is a sound, which is one letter, which is sh. There's a sound, which is one letter, which is s. There's a sound, which is two letters, which is s. Right? So sh, s, s. Being able to develop the ear for that and then read it. So it took me about a year to figure all that out. And then I sat down with my dad for another year and I would say, okay, dad, so what's the word for, and I'm going to use a, it's not a high frequency word, but it's an example that kind of shows the complexity here. What's the word for fat? Oh, the word for fat is sh. Okay. So when you say sh, are you saying sh or s? Because, oh no, s means to sell. Oh, okay. So sh is fat, s is sell. What about s? S means new. Okay. So I would go through every single word on this list and I would ask him, can you say this word? Can you say it slowly? Can you say it quickly? Uh, when you say that word, are you saying huh? Are you saying huh? Are you mm-hmm. saying kuh? Are you saying kuh? Right? And phonetically spelling everything out. I then found somebody who was um, in the United States from the North Caucasus who spoke English well and uh, paid her to review all the spelling. And then not knowing any better, um, and not having, not knowing, I don't think, I'm not sure Anki was around back then. Memorize certainly wasn't around. I made physical flashcards and I memorized about two or 3,000 words. Wow. Wrote memorization, the yeah. worst way to learn. Yeah. No context, no nothing. Yeah. And then I, um, I opened up, I got my hands on one of these, like, you know, first grader textbooks from the North Caucasus, where Circassian is taught in schools. And I opened it up and I said, uh, you know, the first thing, I don't know, a man and Sabina are playing with the tope, with the ball. So what, what does mean? I never heard that word before. I know the word jog, which can mean a couple different things, but what's this? So I had my hands on a physical dictionary by this point and I would look, you know, what's the word? Couldn't find it anywhere. I'd go over to my father's house. What does hujog mean? Oh, they play with. Why don't they say play with? He's like, well, hmm. you don't say play and with. You put a prefix in front of play, which means to play with. And so I uh, had no concept for this at the time. But the reality is what I learned is Circassian is a polysynthetic language. Mm-hmm. So um, when I presented at um, the Polyglot Conference in Fukuoka, Japan, I gave an example of the complexity of learning a polysynthetic language, and I wrote on the board (laughs) what is written as one word, but what is in practice a sentence, but it's written as one word, and it's, so let's say I saw that in a book. It's a very common phrase. Could you help me? Hmm. Couldn't you help me? Subjunctive test uh, case. So you will never find that in a dictionary. And because it is a polysynthetic construct, what you have is a collection of prefixes, affixes, and word roots that are all combined together with actually very, very few vowels in there. And in that particular word, um, means like to do something in my direction. Mm-hmm. means to help. The makes it subjunctive. Couldn't you do something? The inu makes it in the future tense because you can't have subjunctive in the present tense because it hasn't happened yet. And then that para at the end means like, you know, maybe could you do it? Because we don't have a word for maybe. Mm. So 
multiple and, and that's how everything works in circassian and every everything you say basically you have a whole bunch of prefixes and affixes around the verb that convey the complexity of what you're about to say mm-hmm. then you have the whole sentence that actually has all the complexity repeated all over again roger um so and, and do those do those prefixes and suffixes and it, i don't know if there's infixes or not but did, are these saying who did the doing yes. and when it, okay so it's yes got it so they, they show the directionality of the verb they convey who did what and so on and so forth and then the other thing is circassian does not have true prepositions so a lot of these affixes will show will show where and how the um verb is being done so for example tlsin means to sit down so to say i sit next to you Bra means I did it next to you. So bradaslash means I sat down next to you. Um, uh, what would I? Well, I, don't, I can't think of anything else I would do next to you. But we 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 always apply these suffixes and affixes and things like that. And then that's on the more straightforward stuff. The other day I was talking to my son. Um, you know, he's five years old. We speak Circassian as the exclusive language in our household, and he's, you know, my children, even back in our ethnic homeland, there's not a lot of kids, my kids age who speak Circassian as well as they do. Mm. And, um, you know, it, it, he thinks in Circassian. I know because when he speaks English, he makes, he makes mistakes that other people chalk up to him just being a toddler, but I know he's applying Circassian grammar to English. Right. It's interference going from yep. that to the other. Yeah. That's interesting. I, so uh, one question I have for you, yeah. just quick tangent on, on, Raising kids bilingually, because this is a topic that came up in a recent interview as well. Um, one of the challenges I know a lot of parents have if they do live in the United States, and especially with a heritage language like this, there aren't a lot of probably kids his age nearby, if any, who speak <laughs> this language, right? So, and, and just relying on your parents for your linguistic input, it, obviously it, it can work, but it, it, there are a lot of challenges with that. So is there any ways you figured out how to create a context for it or create a any kind of incentives or or you know how do you get all these there's a lot of hurdles there to to overcome but obviously you have because he's fluent so yeah um it's funny because uh and i got to give a shout out to my good friend tetsu young because he he's like the master of multilingual kids um but he he often says to me like i'm i'm in uncharted territory for the for many of the reasons that you just described um so it's interesting because in our ethnic homeland, there's lots of children who don't speak Circassian at all or very well. Um, and yet here we are living in Chicago where there are maybe in all of Chicago land, a dozen Circassians in total and four of them live under my roof. <laughs> so hopefully you um, know all four of those people. I mean, I, I know all four of okay, those good. people. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when, and my wife takes our children to our homeland. Uh, so Nalchik is the city that we're from in the Republic of Kabardino Bakaria. Um, she, she goes there like every summer for extended bouts. Now, last summer was the first summer where my son was really speaking and cognizant of the fact he's in a foreign country and stuff like that. And the first, when he landed, like a day later, I, you know, got my wife and my kids on video chat and I said, you know, so, so Westman, so Wes. How do you, Westman? How do you like uh, Nalchik? You know, do you like it? He's like, Whoa, father! All the kids here speak my language, <laughs> and that's when it occurred to me that at the ripe old age of four, <laughs> that was the first time in his life he had ever spoken to another child who speaks his language. You know that that's right. shocking. Um, so for us, it's not really 
about the um, community. I mean, community is really important. I'm not saying that we don't value it. It's about the daily habit. Right. right. So we speak to him in Circassian. We speak to our so his name is Wes Westman. We speak to our daughter Sabina in Circassian. I have two older daughters from my first marriage, but I didn't speak Circassian at the time when they were born, so their Circassian's not as strong. But uh we speak to them exclusively in Circassian and they speak back to us exclusively in Circassian. And there are times when I will speak to my wife in English, like when I talk about in the United States open enrollment season and health insurance and you know, there's there are no words for these things in my endangered language. Mm-hmm. There just aren't. And I don't know the words for these things in Russian. My Russian's okay, but not great. So there are times where I have to switch or you know, uh, I have to run to the bank and do a limited power of attorney because we're doing something with relatives overseas and sending money or something. Mm-hmm. I can't say that in, in Circassian. We don't have these concepts. So he does hear us speak to each other in in English. But he'll often turn to us and be like, hey, we're Circassian. Why are we not speaking Circassian? Right? <laughs> yeah. And when we jokingly speak to him in Circassian, he's like, Baba, Father, I don't like that. You know, why speak to me in Circassian? That feels weird. Yeah. You know? So we've built that habit. And this is and how that we identity, know. I think. And the identity, really, yeah. yeah. And and this is how we know it's real. And this is it's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. It kind of bugs me when I see people of any language who will have this super staged video of their children who are staring like zombies into the screen and doing like, the little dog goes down the hill. Like they're saying something where they've memorized the, the speech patterns, but it's clear to me they don't really understand the meaning of what they're saying. They've just yeah. memorized it over and over and over again. It's like kids saying the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah. Don't yeah, even what know what it, it mean? means, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, when 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 we're not around, you know, when my son and my daughter, who are five and two, are playing with each other, they play, they talk to each other in Circassian, and that's it. That's that's it. That's the litmus test. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I mean, they'll they'll throw like for example, for whatever reason, my son thinks it's funny to call his sister little man, not <laughs> a little man, you know, and he says it like that, little man, you know. Um, so they do throw a little bit of English at each other, but. Yeah, for us, it's pejoratively. Not, pejoratively, yeah, yeah. So for us, it's not so much about not having access to a community. It really just is, you know, we we wake up every morning and we eat breakfast and we take our showers and we get dressed and we speak Circassian. Yeah, well, you've There's created a, a, you've created a community, I guess, in your own yeah, home. That's fair in, in a sense. Yeah, you're all on the same side of the glass, so to speak. I guess to, to <laughs> whichever side that is. Yeah, whichever side that is. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. So hats off to you guys for you know, accomplishing that feat. Cause I know many try and struggle. So yeah, yeah good for you. Yeah. So we're, we're starting to get into, I think sort of the beginning of your circassian story. And obviously, I mean, I don't speak a word of it other than just what I've heard you say in this interview, but, uh, you sound pretty darn fluent to me. Uh, not that I'm probably a good test of it, but how did you get there? I mean, we started off, you know, with these single word rote memorization flashcards, which you now know, obviously, is probably not the best way to go. But obviously, you figured out some things that did work along the way. So what did your language journey end up looking like as you started to gain steam? And then yeah. with languages that you're learning now, if there are others, how how does that look now on a daily basis? Like, what does a sure. ideal day of language learning look like? Sure. So, um, and I'll, I'll try to be faster now and <laughs> not rambling as much. Um, so I, I think what really clicked for me 
I was in Nalchik uh, several years ago, maybe, well, several, maybe five or seven years ago at this point. And I found something that I'd never, ever, ever seen before. It was a little phrase book called um, <laughs> How to Speak Circassian in Russian. Mm. And I brought it back to the United States and I had friends who um, helped me or helped me, did for me, translated um, all of these Circassian phrases that were there in Russian into English. And I went through this. I'm like, oh, my God, this is like super useful stuff. Like, donde esta la biblioteca, right? Right, right. <laughs> But it was really useful stuff. Like, um, uh, uh, you know, do you want to eat? How No, I'm not hungry. Like, just basic useful things. So I thought, you know, let me let me learn these. Let me, let me, let me memorize this. And the memorization didn't work so well for me. What I found worked really well was um, on a Monday, I would read – slowly just read, not bother writing page one. And then on Tuesday, I would review page one and read page two. And on Wednesday, I one, two, three. And on Thursday, one, two, three, four. On Friday, one, two, three, four, five. I would take the weekend off because I wanted my brain to forget a little bit because I think forgetting is important to remember. Right. And then on the following Monday, I would review the previous Monday for the very, very last time. And I kind of built this five-day habit, this five-day study schedule. And what I realized is I wasn't pressuring myself to um, memorize. I was learning through context and all these phrases were just kind of setting in. Mm -hmm. And I would go, I was living in New Jersey at the time. I would go to our cultural center because there's about five or 7,000 Circassians who live in Northern New Jersey. And I would start speaking to our elders because people my age in the United States, actually in most places don't speak the language anymore. And they would look at me like, wow, your, your pronunciation is not great or it's good now, but it wasn't back then. But where are you learning all this stuff? And I said, I'm just, you know, this is what I'm doing. So they asked me to form um, teaching classes. And over the course of three or four years, I probably taught, um, I taught over a thousand people. Uh, wow. I taught over a thousand people literally from the age of five to 55 because they had me uh, take over the Sunday school program to teach little children. And um, I had old men coming to me and saying, I can speak, but I can't read or write. Can you help me mm -hmm. with that? So literally from the age of five to 55, and I took all these phrases and I built little dialogues and I built these massive PowerPoint presentations and these big PowerPoint presentations, people would ask, you know, can you share that with me? Can I send it to my relative in Turkey or Syria? And my PowerPoint presentation materials got translated into like a half a dozen different languages by volunteers all over the world who started to use my, um, my content to learn Circassian. And I didn't realize this at the time, but what the reason it was successful is <laughs> it was exactly a tech, a textbook application of Stephen Krashen's theories. Indeed. Right. So <laughs> when I, when I finally came across Stephen Krashen's materials and I'm like, wow, I discovered this through trial and error. I tried everything that didn't work. And then what finally did work, he's, he found it before I was even born, but what he described is exactly what my experience is. And so, you know, a bunch of questions you have mistakes and bad recommendations, you know, I'm all about comprehensible input now. Mm -hmm. I'm a hundred percent about comprehensible input. Um, I, I love the guys out there who talk about this at depth. I think Steve Kaufman is a great proponent of this. I love mm -hmm. his blog. I love his, his approach. The only thing I would add though, is in as much as I do believe when Steve Kaufman says it's reading, 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 and I do believe when Stephen Krashen says it's about reading, 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 I would add that you can get fluent in the absence of reading because I come from a whole, you know, I would say 80% of the Circassians who do speak Circassian 
are illiterate in Circassian. Right. So I have personal proof that you don't need to read yes. or write to be able to speak fluently. I, I would also add that I think reading can be a bit of a trap, uh, especially for those that are perfectionistic like myself or who are afraid of making mistakes uh, listening to people or speaking with people. I think it can it can create this little safe, you know, cave-like thing where you just read alone but then don't ever actually go out of your cave to practice. So I, I think that could be a bit of a trap for some, yeah. for some. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, I agree. And I would, I would just say too, I mean, reading's awesome, but why not have that as a, a layer on top of listening? Oh yeah. That way you you actually know how to pronounce the words that you're encountering in your reading instead of, you know, doing the thing that I did when I was younger, which is pronounced hyperbole as hyperbole <laughs> until I was, in the 12th grade and literally said it out loud in a class and my teacher laughed at me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That sticks with you. Yeah. I, I, um, I embarrassed myself the first time I said that's a fungible skill. Mm, that was a good yeah. one. Yeah. Probably um, something Descartes once said, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, so anyway. today, what does my language habit look like? Um, well, I drove myself crazy for a long time because I wanted to – I still want to improve my circassian. And this is you know, um, this is probably buried in one of your questions. Um, the interesting thing about learning a language, it's, it's a never-ending journey. Never. And if you're really passionate about it, you know, you're like, oh, if I only knew 100 words, if I only knew 1,000 words, if I only knew 10,000 words. You yeah, know? the goalpost keeps moving. The goalpost keeps moving. Yeah. So um, – I drove myself crazy because I've got a full-time job. I've got four children. I've got family in New Jersey, family in Chicago, family in Russia, family in the Middle East. I've got all these competing interests, and it was just hard for me to carve time out in a day. Um, and I'm fortunate because you know I've built a language learning app for people like me, and I don't think I'm the only person like me, where a lot of the time that I have is time commuting in the car. Mm -hmm. So um, what is my, you asked me, uh, what does my language learning activity look like? Well, I have about a 20 minute commute to work. Um, so in the mornings coming into work, I will use my, uh, I'll use the Optolingo app to make sure that I'm advancing my circassian. Um, I have some, I do some space repetition flashcards for sentences and phrases, not for vocabulary, um, to augment what I'm doing in the car. So I spend about 20 minutes in the car, you know, uh, listening and repeating because it's an, it's largely an audio based method. And but what then do you I use for flashcards? Is that part of Optilingo or is that a separate app? It's, it's part of the alpha for Optilingo as okay. the guy who is underwriting all the stuff. I have access to features right. that are not public yet. Um, well, if you need a, another alpha or beta tester, let me know. I'm happy to, you're on the list. I'll, I'll, okay. Yeah. Happy to do that. So, um, so I do, uh, five or seven minutes of flashcard review. I do about 20 minutes of, um, you know, listen and repeat shadowing and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's my daily practice going to work. I, I'm kind of stealing back time. That's the term I use often. I'm stealing time. I like that. Back into my day. And then I will do Russian on the way back to home, right? So that's my second language of the day. And then in the home, um, I speak exclusively to my children in Circassian. I speak about 80% to my wife in Circassian. And then, you know, friends and family, it's going to be a mix of a whole bunch of stuff. And then in the evening, typically before I go to sleep, I'll spend... 20 or 30 minutes doing pleasure reading in German because German's a language I speak reasonably well and I don't want to lose it and I do want it to get better. So, you know, I buy or have bought, am buying everything American Amazon has in the German language and I just <laughs> kind of 
need. Um, so those are the three languages that I'm kind of maintaining or advancing. And of course, I have English as well. So there's four. And, you know, I speak crappy Arabic and crappy French and a little bit of Spanish and a little bit of Turkish as well. But I don't really consider those to be real languages for me. Um, but that's also why I think, you know, when I hear these things of people saying, oh, you know, you can't do more than X languages at the same time, you know, or, oh, look at me, I'm doing three languages at the same time. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what about the kids who go to public school and do math and science and history and reading and blah, blah, blah at the same time? Like, right. why, why is French and German and Spanish so much different than history and literature right. and science? Right. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think the key to point out here is in your the way you've designed your day is each of those languages is tied to a specific time or location. And I think that that's yeah. a simple thing, but I think that's super important to underscore because you, you, you start doing that other activity and your brain automatically goes, okay, it's time to do yeah. you know, occasion. It's time to do German. Like, I, I think that's really, really important. Um, yeah. Sort of analogously right now, I'm reading a few different books, which I've, I've read pros and cons of reading more than one book at a time, but it's working for me. And what I do is I have, I have a book I read in my, you know, high back chair when I have my cup of coffee in the morning, I have a book at my nightstand I read before bed. And then I have a book on my actual desk that I, you know, kind of read more in depth when I'm first sitting down in the morning before I work. So they kind of, they're all tied to a specific place. And that, that seems to be working for me. So I would agree with that. And I, I think it all goes, you know, you can, we can say it in different ways, but I think it all goes back into habit. Yep. Right. If you if this place or this time of day is tied to this activity, you're more likely to do it on a regular basis. Right. For better or worse, I think, yeah. <laughs> you know, because people are, for example, trying to quit smoking or something. Yeah. You know, they, they tend to smoke a certain time of day or with certain people. And so if that time of day comes up or they see that person, they're, you know, itching for a hit. So, right. yeah, habits are powerful little things for better or worse. Agreed. Do you, do you have any unusual habits or things that you found that work for you that you haven't heard other people doing? Um, kind of. So I think there's a lot of people out there where it's kind of like a rite of passage for them to read um, The Little Prince or mm-hmm. Harry Potter or something along those lines. Um, so I, I have a little bit of that in my experience as well, but Something I, I got my hands on a book that was written by um, an author from from Nalchik, one of my people named Zawur Nalo. And what he did was he he created a book of fairy tales and some of the fairy a handful are Circassian. Um, half of them are Russian. Half of them are Western European. And so it was really interesting and liberating and freeing and helpful to read Cinderella in Circassian. The Little mm-hmm. Prince in Circassian, uh, uh, Little Red Riding Hood in Circassian, mm-hmm. uh, Puss in Boots in Circassian. And the reason – and I'm a big proponent of this. Um, the reason it was helpful for me is I knew what the story was. So it wasn't a matter – the comprehension wasn't the issue. It was deciphering the syntax, mm-hmm. right? Because when you're reading something that's you know maybe a little bit more advanced than, than you're supposed to read, but perhaps you don't have access to other materials um, – what ends up happening is you are you're tr- and maybe this is not the right technical terminology, but this is just my opinion. You are trying to decipher the syntax and get the comprehension of the story at the same time. Right. Right. So in my case, when I was reading these these fairy tales that I already knew, I the comprehension wasn't an issue. I, I know that this cat has red boots. 
<laughs> I know that this cat is a swordsman, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, the comprehension was there. And because the comprehension was there, it became so much easier for me to decipher the syntax and to advance my command of the language. Right. You had less, I guess, cognitive load on you. Yeah. So you had more more bandwidth to throw at just understanding the grammar. And yeah. So yeah, that's that's interesting. That's a good way to put it. And then the other thing, and I think this is really what kind of, and this is not a commercial for my app. I'm not trying to make it about my app. But the other thing that really went into how I built my app was, um, and maybe this is unique, maybe not. But, you know, when I looked out when I had tried, you know, I, I, I've tried or used or bought or sat in on every textbook, app, uh, language camp you know, you can mm-hmm. imagine. I, I've gone to the Dartmouth Rosias Institute. Uh, one of my family members used to work at the UN. I went to the Rapid Teaching Diplomacy Institute. Uh, you know, Pimsleur, Rosetta Stone, Glossica, Memrise, Duolingo, uh, Living Language, FSI, you name it, I've tried it. We all have, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I often say is there's no one thing that's going to do it all for everybody. Right. So there were components of a lot of these things that I saw. But I remember looking at Pimsleur and saying, you know, Pimsleur's cool, but why are they using like 1950s language? Like, you know, in Russian, their Russian course is like, excuse me, Mrs. Pronin, I have urgent business for your husband. Is he at home? I'll wait. (laughs) Right. It's like, so Mrs. Pronin is basically a glorified maid, right? There's no reason to talk to her because it's the husband who has urgent business. Um, And then the other thing that kind of got me was like, you know, why do they not show you what you're saying, because if you don't have an ear for the language, you're not going to pick up all the vowels and nuance and stuff like that. Um, but they were okay. Right. And then awesome mill was, was really good, except for the fact that it would have been really good in 1980s and, you know, mm-hmm. is less good today because people are busy and don't have that. So I thought, you know, let me take a look at what's out there and what I ended up building. And this is really going back to how I started to really start to glom on this occasion was, um, not dialogues per se, because dial- at first it was dialogues, but then when I threw everything into Anki, which is where I started with all this stuff, the dialogues lost their meaning when I knew f- f- line one, but not line two, and the SRS mm-hmm. would reschedule it. Right. So I came up with phrases. Um, mm-hmm. w- what I did was I came up with a whole bunch of phrases and very, what I would call generic and universal mix and match phrases. So instead of things like, you know, excuse me, sir, can you help me with my luggage? There's a lot of load in there for a one use case specific mm-hmm. phrase, right? As opposed to something like, excuse me, can you help me? Look at this. Look right. at that. Now you can mix and match that to say a whole bunch of stuff right. in a restaurant, at a hotel, at the embassy, right. Right, whatever it is. Help that me doing. with something, something. Yes. Right. Yes. Something, something dark side. So right. I, um, I, I created like this long laundry list of um phrases and that is something that's kind of unique to my learning approach and you know the way that i've kind of evolved our our app as well and then embedding within that um high frequency words so um i had the opportunity to um get my hands on uh data sets from Rutledge for you know five or seven different languages and i actually spent a lot of time statistically looking at you know, high frequency words in Arabic versus German versus Russian versus Mandarin versus English versus Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, and I think in French. And, you know, certainly the word God, Allah, is going to be higher in Arabic than it is perhaps in English. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, hello, goodbye, mother, father, hungry, you know, puppy, um, breakfast. They're all, you know, maybe it's number 17 here, number 32 there, but they're all in the top 50, Right. right. So, um, realize, 
Yep. Green eggs and ham, right? Yep. So um, kind of embedding all those words within the phrases um, and then testing that methodology on myself uh, with Russian. Um, that, that I'm not sure if I would call that unique, but it's something that I really believe in. And it really is it's, – it's kind of combining efficiency with comprehensible input because – you know, there's a there's a lot of great things that are out there, um, and I'm not knocking. Other than Rosetta Stone, I'll never knock anything else out there. Um, yeah, that that one's, but that's too easy to beat up on. It, you know, that horse is down. Let's just let it let it die a slow, but it won't die because it's too yeah. well funded. But anyway, moving on. Yeah, but yeah, just you know, f- so focusing on useful things that have useful words in them that are short and simple. Uh, it's not so much about the complexity of grammar, but it is about mastery and comfort of basic vocabulary and basic expressions. So that's kind of core to the way that I learn languages now. And we haven't yet touched on this, but I want to go into a little bit more about how, uh, your realization that your memory, uh, is not visual. Like, Ah. (laughs) yeah. And I know that that was part of sort of what led you also to learning languages and the way you do now. Uh, and I assume also how you developed Optolingo. So, so what is, uh, is it, I'm going to pronounce it, Aphantasia? I think it's called Aphantasia. Aphantasia, um, okay. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to thank Reddit for this. <laughs> I was on uh, probably a little black hole in Reddit, and I don't know where or how I came across it, but I came across a thread that, you know, somebody was like, hey, guys, did you know there's people out there that really can't see anything when they close their eyes? And I was, I saw this. I was like, who's this guy? Like, of course, nobody sees. You close your eyes, you see black, right? Right. <laughs> and then I started going down this long, you know, probably after an hour on Reddit, I spent another two hours on Wikipedia. And then I realized I'm one of like, I don't know, three or 5% of the human population that when I close my eyes, I see black. I don't, I cannot, I don't visualize anything. So my whole life, I thought, you know, close your eyes and visualize a beach. I thought this was an expression, like, Mm -hmm. you know, just a figure of speech. I didn't think it was a real thing. So um, the next day I was talking to my wife about this and she was like, what? No, I can totally see a beach. Like I can see a beach right now. And I uh, called up one of my daughters, one of my older daughters, who's an artist. uh, And I figured, you know, she would probably be visual here. And I was like, you know, when you close your eyes, can you, can you see stuff? She goes, oh, all the time. I'm like. So is it stuff? And then that, it just blew my mind. And then what blew my mind a week or two later is when I realized that not only can most people see stuff that they've seen before, they can imagine stuff they've never seen before. Mm. Like, you know, I'm imagining a unicorn um, playing with a yo-yo on a Harley Davidson. Like, mm-hmm. that's clearly something that nobody's ever seen before in real life. But I see it in my head right now, as you're saying. <laughs> so I cannot. Yeah. Right. Um, wow. And the only the only way I can explain this, people often ask me, "Well, what does it feel like?" And I say, "Well, I, I don't know because I don't know what you feel like." Right. What's a, what's water feel like to a fish? You know. Yeah. So th- that's actually very close to the way that I describe it. What I would say is, when you close, or I don't know about you, but when most people close their eyes, they can visualize something I cannot. Mm-hmm. Can you remember or imagine what it feels like for your hand to be in hot water, or to hold an ice ball, a snowball? Of course you can. Mm -hmm. Does your hand feel hot or cold when you do it? Probably not. Mm. That's what it feels like for me when I close my eyes and I imagine my wife or my children or a calm lake. I I can remember what that image would look like, but I'm not visualizing that image. The same way you can remember what it feels like for your hand to be cold from holding a, a, a snow cone or an ice ball, 
without actually feeling cold. Hmm. Gosh, the brain is an amazing thing. Uh, I tell you. It's so complicated. I'm really curious about this from, uh, and I don't know if you've learned any um, Chinese characters or, or kanji before or not, but I'm wondering, because a big part of the method I advocate is using what's called imaginative memory, where you're creating a really vivid story in your head to, instead of remembering the strokes visually, you're remembering a story. So I'm wondering how th- this would maybe have to be modified. Um, or, or, or can you do the same thing, but it's just a narrative story and it's not a visual story. It's a narrative story. Um, like, so for example, I've been playing around with a little bit of Turkish lately okay. and, um, I don't know why this word comes into my head, but the word unja, right? Unja means like a go or it can mean before, or it can mean um, the first thing. So for, for some reason, I don't know why, when I think of unja, I think of orange. And I think I had an orange an hour ago. It was the first thing I ate. And that's actually, that narrative, it sounds complex, but it's a tenth of a second in my brain. Right, right. And, and that's what helps me to remember that unja can mean a go or first thing or before. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why that makes, but... Yeah, no, it's a great mnemonic. I mean, it, it's, yeah. it's you have all of these things to attach the information to that. Otherwise, there'd be nothing. It'd just be in one ear out the other. So, yeah. Interesting. So, or, or for example, and then it gets really interesting because for some reason, my brain just kind of jumps languages without really worrying about it. So, the word in uh, Turkish for girl is kiz, right? So, um, kiz sounds like a... Um, verbal prefix in circassian which means qiz qiz is different than kiz right the qiz in circassian is a verbal prefix you put in front of any verb that means to do it in my direction so you know you would hope i mean i'm a happily married man but you would hope if you see a pretty girl on the street she would be walking in your direction and that's the device i use to remember that kiz is turkish for girl um just a few quick rap fire questions to wrap up um, is there anything that you've changed your mind about, you know, things like, you know, comprehensible input, obviously is something you're, you're still very much a believer in. Are there other things you used to believe that you had to do in languages that you now don't do, or are there things you now are doing that you used to think were crazy or weren't even on your radar? Um, I, the, I think the one thing that's changed is my, and I don't know if it's changed or just evolved. It's, um, I know I psyched myself out for years thinking circassian was quote unquote hard. Yeah. So this idea that things are hard is gone. Mm-hmm. The idea that um, self-confidence plays such a massive role is front and center. Huge. Um, and if you have self-confidence and you don't think things are hard, you just think they think they, they take time, you've got no issue making a fool of yourself screwing up in your target language. Right. So those are probably changes that have evolved yeah. in my view. That's a good one. I think that's really uh, an important theme I've noticed amongst all of the polyglots I've interviewed, you know, dozens and dozens now. And that's, I think, one of those kind of universal themes. The specific methods might vary, but that's definitely one thing I've noticed is they all, uh, they don't see languages as hard. They're just different and mm-hmm. they just have a go. And they're not, yeah. they're not worried about making mis- make mistakes or making a fool of themselves. Um, nor are little kids, which is one of the reasons why they tend to pick things up. You know, we yep. think think kids are better language learners. I think no, they just don't care about making mistakes. <laughs> or it's a big part Agreed. of it. Big part of Agreed. it. At least. 
Um, other than Optolingo, are there any other language resources or tools that, that are um, kind of on your top list of things that you really enjoy or found very useful or often gift to other language learners? Yeah, so um, I still use memory, uh, not memories, I still use Anki a little bit in part because um, it's, it's, you can have user generated content on it. Mm-hmm. With Optolingo, I can generate the content because I'm the architect of the platform, <laughs> but other people can't. Mm-hmm. And even then, um, there, there's, there's a fair amount of programming time just the way that the thing was designed. It was never designed to be uh, user-generated stuff. So I still use Anki uh, a fair amount. I'm, I'm not a big user of Duolingo, but I do think that Duolingo, to their credit, has come a long way in mm-hmm. terms of the quality of their content. Um, I'm not a big fan of the fact that they kind of make you do everything like five or seven times now. I, yeah. I, I think this is just as a guy who works in business and has an MBA and has a language learning app, my suspicion is it was cheaper to change the algorithm than it was to generate more content. Mm, that, <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. And so yeah. by changing the algorithm, they expanded their customer lifetime value without spending the money necessary to go and generate because mm. generating content you know, generating it, proofreading it, you know, oh, all, extremely expensive. And time it's it's so yeah. expensive. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that they've come a long way. I, I'm not a, I'm personally not a big fan of memorize just maybe it's because the way my brain processes visual stuff. Mm. Um, but I know lots of people, I know Chris loves memorize. Um, so I think memorize is probably pretty good. Um, I'm a big fan of Austin Mill. If you can sit down and actually, you know, find the time to sit at a desk and use a book, right. uh, FSI materials, I think are great. The, the reality is other than, other than, uh, Rosetta stone, <laughs> mm. I don't think there's anything that's bad. You know, I think Glossica is a great platform as well. Um, yeah, you know, I was actually going to ask you if you had maybe done any work with, with Mike for, uh, Sarcasian, cause I don't know, yeah. I know he's big into heritage so languages, I, so. Yeah, I, I met Mike in person when we were in Fukuoka together, and we spoke at length about his efforts to do language preservation for mm-hmm. some of the languages that are spoken native to Taiwan. Um, using him as, as an interpreter, I was able to speak with some of the local people that he had brought with him who are struggling to do some of the stuff that I figured out, and I was able to learn some of the stuff that they're working on really well that I haven't been able to figure out. Um, we have not collaborated on Circassian for a number of logistics reasons. He's halfway around the planet. Yeah, I think you have to be in his studio to record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I, I think you know certainly I think Glossica is a very interesting and very robust platform as well. So mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything bad out there. There's very few things that are bad out there, and I think you know Steve Kaufman says this very well. Anything will work if you enjoy it and put in the time. Right. So. Right. If you enjoy it and you put in the time, it's going to work. You're going to yeah. get the. Absolutely. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And I think another important uh, factor here, too, is, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, but no single tool or resource is probably going to be enough either on its own. And I think no. that's, that's where you get into problems. I mean, I, I do, I am a big fan of Duolingo in many ways, um, but like many other platforms, they sort of mark themselves as being a one stop shop. And it's not going to be enough <laughs> if you really want to, you know, fully understand and use a language with native speakers. You're not going to, I think it, it's a helpful adjunct. It's a nice little sprinkling on top, but yeah, it's no replacement for authentic content and speaking with actual human beings. Agreed. So Agreed. Fully agreed. Cool. Well, any uh, final words of encouragement or motivation for people that are 
either just getting started in a language or have been at it for a long time and are, are struggling to, to keep going or, or make progress? You know, it's funny you say it that way because um, one of the sort of taglines in our marketing materials are, you know, uh, if you don't know where to start or how to finish, right, Optolingo is a good good choice for you, not, not to make this about marketing. But I think that's where a lot of people get stuck. They mm-hmm. They don't know where to start or they started and they don't know how to kind of finish, go to, you never finish, but yeah. you know, go to the you next level. You need an level, exit strategy it. of some kind. Yeah. 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 Or a maintenance strategy. There you go. Um, I, I think my, the, the most intelligent and helpful thing that I can say is that it takes time. Mm-hmm. It absolutely takes time. And I know, you know, you, uh, from, I've heard from some of your other podcasts, um, you know, you are into, uh, I believe martial arts. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm into, um, strength conditioning. So, I think there's a lot of parallels between any sort of physical activity, whether you are looking to learn a martial art or you know, advance your, your bench press or your squat or, or sprint a mile or whatever, run a mile in record time. The reality is that on a day-to-day basis, you're not going to see progress. Right. On a day-to-day basis, however, because you're not seeing progress, you can be tempted to just not do it today because you'll make it up tomorrow. Right. But the reality is if you spend 20 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day, you know, 15 minutes a day. I think we can all carve out 15 minutes a day. If you spend 15 minutes a day, 365 days a year, what is that? That's 91 hours. 91 hours is probably enough to get to A1, maybe A2. I don't know. Yeah. So so. if you can carve out 15 minutes a day over three years, multiply that by three, 273 hours, maybe you're at B1, right? And the thing is, a lot of people say, well, I don't want to wait three years. Well, I got news for you. Three years from now, as long as you're still alive, you're going to be three years older, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? It's going to happen anyway. So it's yeah. going to happen anyway. So right. if you can if you can carve out 15 minutes um, on your car ride, uh, you know, elevators and waiting time, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whatever, we can all carve out 15 minutes. If we can carve out that time and just, it's kind of like investing your money for retirement. Yeah, it's compound interest for compound interest. Yeah, language acquisition. Yeah. So I, I guess the most intelligent thing I can say to everybody, to anybody, is this stuff takes time. Even you know, there, there's a handful of sort of celebrity polyglots that kind of gloss over the complexity, and none of those guys are taken seriously. But the real guys out there, you know, a lot of them, I know a lot of them. They'll be the first one to tell you, "Yes, I speak ten languages." But guess what? <laughs> I put in hundreds of hours yeah. per language. Right. Right. So it takes time, but it, you know, it is one of the most worthwhile and rewarding experiences because, you know, I uh, what's his name, Luco. I'm gonna. Do you know Lampreano? how to pronounce his last? Yes. Thank you. Um, when, uh, I've heard him say this a few times, you know, the polyglot dream is the dream to live multiple lifetimes in the same lifetime. Mm-hmm. I, I, that is such an amazing and beautiful and astute thing to say. And the best way to sum this up, because, you know, when you can engage in Japanese or Mandarin or, or Arabic or Circassian or Russian, you can engage in a whole nother culture, a whole nother view, a whole nother world mindset. And that is so valuable that carving out 15 or 20 minutes a day, you know, and doing that long-term, it's, it's like investing five bucks a month and, you know, having a retirement nest egg that's worth millions. Yep. I love it. Couldn't agree more. Yes. Well, here's to investing everybody. Uh, <laughs> put it, put it <laughs> this in those, stock's going up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
I just well, I just like with the vaccine, you have to keep it in there. You know, don't take it out, don't quit. Yes. Keep yes. keep keep put it in, and then just don't look at it. So exactly, yeah, love it. Well, Jaunty, thank you so much. Really appreciated our chat, and so cool to hear more about your background and your app. And I'll definitely include the blog and the app and everything in the show notes. Uh, cool. Yeah, hope to cross paths in in meet space as they say one of these days one of the polyglot gatherings or something and yeah yeah, good luck with all your endeavors thank you and thanks for having me thanks for coming on all right take care thank you very much for listening hope you enjoyed my chat with john t again for show notes go to languagemastery.com slash show and if you enjoyed the program want to help keep it going there's two things you can do Leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Helps other people find the show. And if you happen to be learning Japanese, check out my book, Master Japanese, which is now available in print on Amazon. Go to languagemastery.com slash book. All right. We'll see you next Language Mastery Monday.